If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. What's the crack? It is podcast time. The sun is out. It is tropical out here in Dunleary. John, how are you, my man? It's going to be tropic. It's tropic and all. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's wonderful, but... We're going to stick with the weather, but we're going to look at the environment. We're going to look at climate change because this week, if you've been watching the news, you'll see in Canada, parts of the United States, temperatures going through the roof. You'll see in London, in Brussels, in Germany, you'll see a huge flooding. Dozens of people dead, many hundreds feared dead, missing. We know that climate change is not only on its way, it's here now. It's here now. And yet we prevaricate. John, I know you've been an environmentalist well before it was ever discussed. Yeah, well, that that is my... uh, That's your thing. That's my degree. I know. I did a degree in environmental science. And and even back then, you hear the same old arguments now, the same old climate deniers. I said it before, I think on one of our live shows, that climate change deniers should be treated the same as Holocaust deniers. Because I think it is as important, as deadly as the Holocaust was, not belittling the Holocaust in any sort of way, but millions of people. It's interesting, actually. I was just reading a Sky News. I'm not a huge fan of Sky News, but sometimes they do really brilliant reports. And and they've a whole series of climate change reports at the moment. Well, here's just one fact. I'm just going to pull out this one fact. In 2020 more than 1,770 weather-related events led to more than 30 million new displacements around the world. Of people. Of people. That is shocking. I mean, you know, you never... And you're saying large or small. It could be a small event with like a family moving or groups of individuals moving. Yeah, but but it's just constantly, constantly... But it's because of the weather. You know, in, in California, for instance, one million people were displaced. 
you know, a Western society you'd never expect right. to have refugees, and you have a million of them in the West Coast of, of America. But in Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, is the fastest growing city at the moment. And it's the fastest growing city because a third of the country, pretty much a third of the country, is a floodplain. It's a delta. Yeah. So um, it gets flooded every year, but the flooding is getting worse and worse and, the, and worse. And the people are moving to Dhaka. People are moving but to Dhaka. Imagine like what's going to happen 2, when 2,000 a day or something like that. But imagine what's going to happen when those people move from Bangladesh into <sighs> Pakistan, into India. I China, mean, Myanmar, not, the whole lot. We should, not, we should not ever forget that since the foundation of the state of Pakistan, the state of India, and later the state of Bangladesh, which used to be known as East Pakistan, there have been numerous wars. And all those wars, although people believe them to be over ethnicity and religion, they're actually over resources. Yeah. yeah. Right? And of course, the biggest one is water. Is water. And, yeah. the, and, and, and I tell you, last year... It's ironic I, we're talking about flooding, you know? Well, well it's <laughs> funny. I was in a place in India. I went, I went to the most holy city for the Indians. Varanasi. Exactly. Yes. On the Ganges. Yeah. And I asked them all, and of course they believe in this holistic sense of the Ganges and whatever, but the Ganges rises in the Himalayas, right? And of course, what is happening in the Himalayas is the Chinese are diverting the water away from India into China at the very top, leading to what could be clearly the most dangerous resource war, which Mm. is between China and India. Because the Ganges plain is the breadbasket of India. It's what feeds India. And when you're in Varanasi, you get that sense of the river, the fragility of people and river and agriculture and weather and the flow of water. Anyway, we could talk about this It it goes on and on. And and the other big one is the River Jordan as well in in the Middle East. Yes. That's another... Where uh, the Israelis are diverting the water. Yeah, 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 exactly. You could end up with stuff, you know... You know, we've seen it happen before in the Aral Sea, in uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. You know, that was that was a sea pretty much the size of Leinster, and it's now kind of disappeared. Well, so the, you have you have these fishing trawlers, literally a hundred miles yeah, yeah. from. from I know, the water. I know. Well, there's actually, there's another one in Russia called Lake Baikal, which oh, is yes. right in the middle. And that again, if you look at the sea levels. And I'm talking going back to the 60s, not not hundreds of years ago, mm. but not that long ago. And you just see the various different notches where the sea levels. Lake just- Baikal is, is a particularly interesting lake because it has its own unique ecosystem. It is the clearest and cleanest water, uh, freshwater in the world. It's one of the deepest freshwater lakes, but it has its own species of seals, freshwater seals. You Man, see, I could go on. See, I, could go on. <laughs> I told you. Deep down, into I can actually, I can tell you, when John was a kid, he used to come over to my house. We were about seven or eight. And I would be watching football and reading Shoot, right? The great magazine. <laughs> Shoot, yeah. Okay? Where footballers would always give their favorite meal, which was always scampi and chips. So I used to ask my mom to make scampi and chips for us. And she didn't know what scampi was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But John would come over with animal track books about tracks and animals and the environment and all that. and fascinatingly, I was behind the curve and he was well ahead of the curve. But what I want to talk... I know, that's true. But what I want to talk now, John, there's a great economist called Professor Steve Keane, an iconoclast from Australia. He has been chipping away at the role of economics. I mean, he really feels that economics 
and economists are not the cause of, but are part of the problem when it comes to giving advice, not only about climate change, but lots of other stuff. He's in Bangkok. He is a brilliant mind, brilliant mind. And he's got a lot of things to say about the role of economics and economists in making things not better, but much, much worse. So let's go to Bangkok. Now we have a special, special conversation coming up with Professor Steve Keen. Every single discipline needs somebody to go against the consensus. Every discipline. In fact, I don't know who it was. Somebody very intelligent said, you only, only get to the top of your game once you reject your peer group and you escape the tyranny of the peer group. And economics, believe me, we can go into it, Steve and I, and actually we won't, but economics has been dominated by the tyranny of the peer group for a long, long time. So much so that some of even the basic ideas don't stand up to the, even the most remote bar stool curiosity or questioning of whether or not they reflect reality. Now, Steve Keen has been chipping away for a long, long time, also using mathematics, using really heavy data stuff in order to fight the battle against economics, mainstreams and economic consensus in their own backyard. Okay. He is on the line. He's a Kilkenomics delinquent recidivist. He's on the line from Bangkok. Steve, how are you? Mate, I'm very well and great to hear your voice once more. It's been too long since last uh, Kilkenomics. Yeah, well, listen, you know, when we can all get out to play, we'll see what happens this year. We're still toying with the idea of going ahead, going not ahead. But look, Let's see how it goes. You know, the last thing you want to be doing is packing a thousand people into a cathedral and then suddenly somebody hits the alarm bell and we all have to split. And yeah, uh, yeah. But we, we, we'll figure it out. Steve, I want to ask you straight away about climate change and economics, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Explain to me why you think by looking at climate change, you can really evidence how much economists get wrong. Oh, it's. I, I have to say that, like you said, I've been doing this for a long time. It's actually 50 years that I can date since I first became a critic of economics. In fact, it's almost today because it was in the middle of July of 1971 in the first year economics lecture that I had explained to me what's called the theory of the second best. And that drove a hole through the usual arguments against trade unions and against monopolies. Anyway, so 50 years of that. I have never read anything as bad in the 50 years I've been a critic as the work I've seen by neoclassical economists who specialised in climate change, especially the guy that gave a Nobel Prize to in 2018, William Nordhaus. And the reason is, let's assume a can opener. You know that old joke? Go for it. Okay, the, okay you've got uh, you know, a physicist and a, and a chemist get, and an economist get wrecked on a desert island and a container load of baked beans floats up and that's all they've got to eat. And the, the chemist says, well, if we, I can start a fire with those palm fronds over there and, 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 blow, and blow the cans up. And the physicist said, well, if you do that, I can work out the trajectory of the beans and we can go and eat them. And the economist says, oh, I mean, you're doing it too hard. Just assume we have a can opener. <laughs> okay, right. Now, so you're going from okay. the impractical to the hyper-impractical. Hyper-impractical. And, and, and this is what Nordhaus did. Now, uh, it just goes to the chase. Uh, of course, there's numerous, thousands of scientific papers about the damages of tens of thousands about the damages of climate change. And I naively thought that what Nordhaus has done is take some of those and apply a high discount rate to them. Uh-uh, I was wrong. What he did was he simply assumed that anything happening indoors would be unaffected by climate change. Indoors. Okay. 87% of industry 
he ruled out as being unaffected of climate change because it occurs in quote-unquote carefully controlled environments. And literally all of manufacturing, all of services, wholesale, retail, all of government activity, uh, everything that and even mining, you see, he obviously wasn't thinking about open and cut mining, thinking about underground mining. He said all those industries will be negligibly affected by climate change, and he couldn't see any way they'd be affected in the next 50 to 75 years. This well, is writing back wait, 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 in so, 1990. So, 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 so because things happen indoors, irrespective yeah. of what the outside temperature is, is this what he was saying? This stuff will not be affected by climate change and will continue yeah, to go yeah, on as yeah. is. Now, yeah. what you're highlighting... Steve, is that once you begin to assume away reality, your models exactly. your models are no longer simulations of what might happen in the real world, but they're just kind of bullshit. They're fantasies, total fantasies, and and this is what I found, and and like it was, it actually that was it wasn't the first thing I found. I'll give you an anecdote here. The first I found was reading a paper by a guy called Richard Toll. Uh, who's one of the cabal of economists who works with uh, Nordhaus. I really think cabals are pretty good. You know, coven might be a useful term as well. Uh, they all so they think they think so alike. They, they might have been reading their scripts from the same playbook. But he said that one of the way they worked out numbers on the, what damage climate change would do to the economy was by doing empirical work now on the relationship between income in one particular location on the planet and temperature, and then using that to predict what's going to happen with climate change. And because they found a weak relationship between temperature and income today, they predict a weak impact of climate change on the economy. And that literally goes to the stage where Nordhaus in 2018, after he got the Nobel Prize, in an American Economic Review journal, published a prediction that a six-degree increase in global temperatures would reduce GDP by less than 10% compared to what it would have been in the complete absence of climate change. Now, six percent will six percent would burn us alive. We'd be gone. Six degrees, we would be extinct. Okay, okay. six so, degrees is enough to wipe out, certainly wipe out most mammals. And of course, we eat the mammals. We rely upon them and fish. Uh, uh, if a billion humans survived that, that'd be a miracle, okay. and it wouldn't be a particularly enjoyable miracle. So let's so let's let's. Let's get down to brass tacks. It's always struck me about economic models. And I don't want to go on about economic models, even though it's an economics mm. podcast, because even my eyes glaze over when I talk about them. But you know the way you see uh, pilots, pilots will train in a simulation hub. And that simulation will say, you know what? If you hit a huge storm in the middle of the Atlantic, this is what to expect, okay? Mm. And mm. we will, you know, and, th- and that's how you simulate reality. And that mm. is very worthwhile and very useful for a pilot. Hmm. If the simulations and models bear no reality to everyday life, hmm. then ultimately the models are not only wrong, but they're actually really misleading. They're dangerous. Okay. They're purely dangerous is the word. And uh, what economists have done, and this is something you and I have been saturated with, is, is the argument that assumptions don't matter. Economists will throw this at you all the time. It comes from Milton Friedman in 1953. Uh, we call the methodology of positive economics. And what he argued in that was that, in fact, rather than being able to criticise in a theory because of its assumptions, he said the more unrealistic the assumptions, the better the theory. Wow. And the idea, okay, and that's, that's another that's Nobel Prize winner. That's another Nobel Prize winner. Now, what he was doing was telling people, if you, you, have, you have to know the literature to know this, telling people don't read empirical articles in the American Economic Review telling you that firms don't face rising marginal costs. 
because you know, the whole upward sloping supply curve, downward sloping demand curve stuff that economists go on about. An essential part of that is the idea that it costs more to produce extra units of output because your productivity falls as you add more workers uh, to production. Now, when, they, when, when empirical researchers went out and checked that, they found, well, that's not the case. In fact, the firms seem to get more efficient as they get to higher and higher levels of capacity. And Steve Freeman said, don't bother reading that stuff. Uh, It's like asking a pool player how they sink a pool ball. They'll tell you because they rub a rabbit's foot beforehand. It doesn't matter. They must be obeying the laws of mathematics to do this, which assumes rising marginal cost, blah, blah, blah. and, and in fact, there's very good reasons why that is wrong. It's, it makes plenty of sense that firms get more efficient as they move towards full production because they're designed by engineers, not by economists. But anyway, that 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 became their way out. Whenever anybody criticised an economist, they'd say, oh, you can't criticise the assumptions. We have to make simplifying assumptions. These are not simplifying assumptions. If this assumption is wrong, the theory is wrong. And that's what you and I are talking about. And then the model will predict wrong. And if you base everything on the model, You'll actually go off on a wild goose chase in the wrong direction. Let you'll us- end up in the you, you'll end up diving into the uh, you know the Sargasso Sea uh, <laughs> in your simulation. Let us talk about climate change. Okay, mm. even this week, even this week, yeah. all around the world, we're seeing evidence of an increasing with alacrity yeah. of events that are pointing in one direction. What yeah. can we do about climate change? What can economics do? And can we affect proper climate change policies in democracies that are open, mm. that are, you know, kind of messy and nudgy and all that sort of stuff? What do you think? Uh, we could have 50 years ago if we'd followed the advice of the limits to growth. And the limits to growth told us that we live in a finite planet. Uh, there are constraints, not just in terms of we might run out of resources, but if you use too much of resources, you'll generate too much pollution, which will cut back on your productivity, et cetera, et cetera. The pollution will damage your food generation and so on. And using all that, those feedback, feedback effects, they said that uh, on the current trajectory, uh, taking from, they took data from 1900 to 1970 and then extrapolated that through a, what's called a system dynamics program through to 2100 and basically said between 20, effectively between 2020 and 2050, we're going to run into some serious stuff uh, in terms of survivability of the planet unless we reduce our trajectory now. And if we'd followed that advice 50 years ago, we could have done it gradually, we could have done it democratically. We didn't and one of the major reasons we didn't was economists trashed that analysis without properly understanding it. And I have to say this, the economist who did most to trash them was William Nordhaus. Our Nobel this Prize winner. fingerprints are all over, everything from 50 years ago. Okay, well, let's leave Nordhaus aside for a second, okay? Yeah. And let's talk about climate change right now. Yeah. So I'm reading about uh, the European Commission, European Union saying we want to get to a zero carbon moment in 2030. 2030 is Mm. eight years away, in effect. Yeah. What needs to be done in a democratic, and I keep coming back to this democratic society, okay, where people vote, self-interest, prevarication, all these things, what can be done now to make that possible? Yeah, the the problem is that we, is, and I think this is a general thing, I'm not going to criticise economists here, but I'm going to criticise humans instead. We never change direction until after what we're doing collapses around us. So 
we, we the ord- the ordinary person is not going to accept just like a lot of people don't accept that covid even exists that that i think the the, the covid deniers have gone but the covid trivializers are still with us um and and all the stuff as we've seen how badly it's affected our capacity to respond to covid uh, and i think the same thing applies with climate change people will not take it seriously until things like what's happening in germany right now and california and canada uh, start happening so wide, people say, what the hell's going on? And then realising that this is actually life-threatening. So I'm afraid that's, I, I think what has to happen, particularly in a democratic society, unfortunately, is people will only accept we have to do something drastic when it becomes clearly life-threatening. And I think this is the decade that's going to happen. Now, okay, the question so- is, can we get out of our reaction? I'm not really sure. Well, I mean, if you think of COVID, Steve, uh, COVID had a profound change in behaviour of the whole world from the top down. We actually mm. did manage in democratic societies to say, hold on, this is an existential threat, maybe not to everybody, but to our health system, which is sufficiently mm. important to us. And we did change behaviour. So there we, are- did, we, did, we, we did fairly well. I mean, I've, I've got an ambivalent feeling about COVID overall. Uh, there are, like the, the, the gold star has to go to New Zealand. Uh, and that really comes down to a, 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 you know, a politician... Uh, Jacinta Ahern and a, a strong social bond in New Zealand, and they've kept it out, and they've kept it out, you know, permanently. There's that's and Taiwan as well has done pretty well. Um, so you can do it, and then even even as bad as it's been done in the UK, you've still got you know the vaccine rollout's been reasonably effective. So we have done some effective countering of it, but it 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 was. Again, the warnings about this being a possibility occurred as long ago as 1995. Now, what was America doing and the UK doing in 2018? They were dismantling their protections against the pandemic. Trump actually bragged about it was okay to sack all these people from the Centre for Disease Control because he can hire them again when necessary. Well, that worked well. Uh, and and uh, uh, UK's minister was asked how many... Asked how many masks should they should they have in reserve? The answer from the scientists was one billion. Oh, that's too many. Let's put fifty million in reserve. Well, they went out in two days. By you the know, way, I'm so- talking. I'm talking. I'm talking to Professor Steve Keen. What 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 you don't see is we're talking on Zoom, and behind him is a sort of a little <laughs> magical performance by a pair of cats who are jumping up and down. And they, they look they look fantastic, and they're adding to the ambience of the conversation. Steve, what do we have to do? Let's talk about climate change. Yeah. Do we have to dramatically reduce economic output, production, etc., right now, in order oh, to we- bear down on carbon consumption in order to get us somewhere? Yes, I believe we do. Okay. I simply, we simply can't do it by growing more carefully. We can't grow. We have to shrink the economy. And that shrinkage, of course, has to be uh, the burden of that shrinking has to fall on the wealthy and not on the poor. That's the only way I can so, see it So happening. let's talk about this. How, how, does this okay. how does this materialize in the next decade? Because this, this is the big question. We can talk yeah. about, you know, economists get worried about inflation. Things like, relax, mm. relax. That, that's, that's chicken that's feed. That's chicken that's feed, trivia. right? Let's talk yeah. about, about climate change. Well, what I, what I came up with, and I found somebody actually beaten me to the idea, was carbon rationing. And uh, the concept was that we have, uh, we, have, we have a price system right now where if, you can, you, if you've got money, you can buy something. If you don't have money, you can't buy something. Uh, we need to not control not money. We need to control carbon. So my idea was to have the central bank build a digital currency through which it would distribute a universal carbon credit on a per capita basis. So you'd get exactly the same carbon allowance that Rupert Murdoch gets. Okay. Okay. Now, 
Uh, and then whenever you bought something, it would have two prices, a money price and a carbon price. Now, of course, as a, uh, if you then set that at the average for a country, uh, you and I might just exceed it, but 90%, 95% of the population would not use the universal carbon credits. So therefore, they'd have some to sell. And the rich, the Richard Bransons of the world, let's use a very opposite example recently, yes. uh, would have a huge need to buy universal carbon credits off the poor. So this would be a way of rationing carbon while putting the burden of adjustment on the rich and letting the poor benefit from the process. I like that idea. I do like that idea. So, so the rich countries, let's say Western Europe, United States, Oz, New Zealand, for for, for one, are using enormous amounts of carbon. We're flying all over the place. We're buying mm. stuff, et cetera, et cetera. The poorer countries, let's take your African countries, your Kenyas of, of this world, are not using it. So basically mm. we would be charged for our excessive consumption of carbon. We would pay them and they would do what? Well, it's actually thinking of doing it at the national level because one thing, again, I'm very conscious of is a good way to stop something happening is to require an international agreement for it to occur. Yeah, you don't want to be doing that. The waffle that goes on at these damn things. I mean, you know, and and it's all bureaucrats and large documents and all the nonsense. That's uh, the COP twenty six will be the same, I expect. Uh, though maybe what's happening in Germany will put some urgency to it. But if you can do it at the national level, uh, and you make it something which is beneficial to ninety to ninety five percent of the population, that I think it's feasible. So my idea of a universal carbon credit, carbon rationing, and the website that I'm now associated with is called carbonrationing.org. Uh, you could do that at the national level tomorrow. And yes. say, okay, digital currency, every day you're going to get a UCC allowance from the central bank. Um, uh, you were 90% will, if we set it at the average, because of such a skewed distribution of income and wealth in society, the average is what 95% of people consume less than. Yes. Yeah. No, so if you set it at that level, only the top 5% would be actually running out of carbon credits and have to buy off the poor. That would put enormous pressure on them to stop buying, you know, diesel fuel and and gas field stuff and go over to electric. So that's one motivation there. The poor would benefit by getting money out of it. And you'd, I think, a, a strong pressure to reduce it at the national level. And then you could take that national to the international scene when it became obvious that we had to do it a damn sight faster than even that scheme would do. Now, you know, because I like that because basically it's, it's, it's a wealth tax, it's an environmental yeah. tax, and it's an equilibrium or an equalizing measure. It's an on- equalizer. Yeah, okay. I, I I like this idea, and that's on the consumption side, right? What mm. what fascinates me is I was down in the west of Ireland the other day, and mm. at the moment the weather is quite good, but a couple of weeks ago it wasn't very, very good. I was looking at the waves, and I was feeling the wind at my face, and I was thinking to myself, there's only four real renewables. There's wind, wave, solar, and geothermal. These are, the, mm. these are our natural ways, parents. Mm. For the last hundred years, the Dubais or the United Arab Emirates or the Saudis of this world were the source of all energy. Mm. Would it be feasible that Northwestern Europe, remote islands in the Northwest of Europe, could actually become the Saudi Arabia of the renewable world? Uh, this is one thing which I've, I have a lot of engineers on my Patreon site, and uh, there, there are sort of two major camps there's pro nuclear and pro renewables. Okay. And I'm finding myself you know, torn between the two. Uh, the, the the nuclear mobs say that the energy density of renewables is too low and the resource need 
to generate all that stuff. And particularly in terms of solar cells, that you know the the rare earths you have to use, ditto inside magnets for wind farms and so on. Uh, we we face resource constraints in that direction as well. Uh, the nuclear mobs say, well, the density of nuclear power is so much higher than oil, so much higher. A piece of thorium you could hold in your your hand would give you enough energy for 200 years as an individual consumer. Uh, So they say the energy density of nuclear is higher. Now, and they're also telling me that the safety issues we used to worry about are dramatically lower than they were 30, 40, 50 years ago with old nuclear power design. So I'm torn between the two. Uh, I, I, I respect engineers a damn sight more than I respect economists. They tend to factionalise nonetheless. Of course I, they I'm, do. I'm all all I'm tribes, bridging. all tribes get very jealous and turn into yeah. factions. But go on. So I think it's feasible uh, to do both. But the speed at which we'd need to do it is something scary. The rate at which we'd need to do this to decarbonise is huge because when you look at the levels that renewables are providing of total energy consumption right now, it's about 15%. And most of that is, is, uh, is still the old-fashioned hydro. Uh, even though we were yeah. rolling out you know, solar and wind very quickly, it's got a long, long way to go. And you'd need to have the rate of growth of solar and, uh, and, w- and wind increase by a factor of about six to eight from what I've seen to get to the stage where by 2050 we could have total renewables, let alone 2030. I'm, I'm telling you what, I'm looking at a glittering city in the sky in the west of Ireland, powered mm. by renewables, powered by wind waves. No, but it is interesting because countries need to be thinking this way. What are we going to do in the next 100 years? How are we going to play our part? Do we have any natural energy and renewable sources? And if we do, use them. Go and use them. Yeah, Yeah, we've got to do that. I think we've also got to reduce our load on the planet in general because it's a mistake just to focus upon carbon dioxide and temperature. We're doing far more damage to the biosphere than just those two. What we're doing to biodiversity is scary the rate at which we're causing species to go extinct. And by the way, on that front, economists are an absolute... Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I keep sarcastic. I, I lose my, my track on sarcastic thoughts occasionally. But I've, one of the so-called experts that uh, Nordhaus consulted was an economist who said that in talking about the economic damages from climate change, he didn't worry about the existence of ants. He didn't care about ants except for drugs. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, just like COVID doesn't care about uh, you know, our democracy, the biosphere doesn't care about what we think about it. If we knock out ants, we'll die. Okay? It's part of the web of life. So it's more than just the carbon we need to think about. And we've gone far too far. We have to pull back, even if it was only car- even if we had carbon under control, we'd still need to pull back on how much we're intruding upon the biosphere. Steve, can I just conclude? I mean, this is great, fascinating stuff. Like we could talk, you know, and well, we have done late at night all about economics <laughs> and all sorts of carry on. And we're definitely going to come back because I want to talk to you about the economics of money. I want to talk to you about mm. MMT. I want to talk to you about constraints. I want to talk to you about really reimagining and mm. rewiring our brains as economists mm. to actually rid ourselves of some of the nonsense we've inherited over the last, uh, you know, in your case, 50, in my case, 30 years, okay? But let's just Mm. come back to a final thought, okay? Mm. Do we now need to wriggle free of the influence of traditional economics on policymaking across a significant number of sectors in order to see the light? Yeah, we've got to get rid of economists. Period. Okay. See, John's, okay. John's got to go. This whole off over here. They've got to go. Uh, 
And actually the final, I've got a new book coming out, as you know, in October called The New Economics, The Manifesto. And I'm talking about neoclassical economics, but the final line is it has to go. And I'm like, as I said, we chatted away saying Noah Noah Smith once accused me of wanting to drive a purge. He's right. I want to purge the world of neoclassical economists because the damage they've done to our capacity to understand not just climate change, but the economy as well, which we're going to go on to next, uh, is enormous. And you yeah, you know, we've been trying to shift them. I've been trying for 50 years. Other critics have been trying. You, know, you can date back to you can go back to to Hobson and the Confessions of an Economic Heretic back at the end of the 19th century. Veblen, uh, we're all been saying this stuff is nonsense. Let's get rid of it. But it's so invasive. You know, it's the, it's the classic invasive species. You got to wipe it out. Steve Keane, I will talk to you soon. Got to wipe it out. I'm getting nervous. John here, he's got his pitchfork. He's got his pitchfork. He's out of the thatch. The revolution begins. The pitchforks are coming. (laughs) Steve, that was great stuff. Listen, talk to you soon. Okay, mate. Will do. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good stuff from Steve. You know, I could listen to that kind of stuff. Although I I was tearing my hair out, you know, people like your man, Nordhaus stuff. I mean. Yeah, well, I mean, he's really looked forensically at the Nordhaus stuff. And Northhouse has a lot of disciples. Uh, he mentioned a guy called Richard Tall, who was knocking around here in Dublin for quite some time. Oh, right. Yeah, but that's a different story. Shin scale Ella. Right. But what do you make of it all? Well, what I thought at the end when he talked about the web of life, we've spoken a few times before about the evolution of economics. Yep. And economics being some class of a, an ecosystem. And it's very true because it's an ecosystem, not just with supply chains and producers and manufacturers and buyers and consumers. It also is an ecosystem that includes the environment and resources. So every economic activity is an environmental activity. And I thought that was really... But one of my favorite quotes that David Attenborough said 
at one stage. I can't remember where he said it, but he said, the only people who believe that economic growth can continue indefinitely are, number one, lunatics, and number two, economists. <laughs> That's you, man. That's you. That's me. Well, I tell you what, we leave it at this image, though, which is, you know, this, the idea of the irresistible force crashing into the immovable object, right? Yeah. And that's when you get, so you've got the irresistible force of seven or eight billion consumers in the world, not just people, right? Wanting to consume, right? And being encouraged to consume by the economic side of the equation, right? Smashing into the unmovable object of the Earth's finance resources. The thing about the Earth, you can't get any bigger. The resources are finite. It is what it is. And uh, that's the story of the next decade, John. So what we're going to do, we started with Steve. Let's keep exploring environmental economics, yes. the environment, resources, resource wars, where our obsession with growth smashes into this idea yeah. of a precious world with finite resources. And let's look at that. Let's make that, make that a topic for the next couple of months. Yeah, I agree. All right, there you go. We're going to get all green on you. Talk to you soon. Just a quick note to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. And if you fancy supporting us on Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.